You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, April 19th, 2022. On April 19th, 1943, Albert Hoffman was the first to synthesize LSD. He accidentally absorbed a tiny amount into his skin and sank into a, quote, a not unpleasant intoxicated-like condition characterized by an extremely extremely stimulated imagination, unquote. He decided to experiment on himself with an intentional dose to confirm the compound's effects and at 4.20 p.m. on April 19th, he ingested 250 micrograms of the chemical. He soon realized that the trip was going to be intense and asked his assistant to help him get home. Wartime restrictions prohibited cars on the streets of so they had to bike, which is why April 19th is now known all around the world as Bicycle Day. So happy Bicycle Day, y'all. And I guess happy Pajama Day, right, Jason? That's right. It's National Wear Your Pajamas to Work Day. Damn it. Okay, this is episode number 261. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the pod the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 29,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. <clears throat> Today, we're talking about Marco Rubio, Hippie Hill, Nevada police use a loophole to keep the drug war alive. A man looking at life for pot. DOJ returned. Nope, we're not going to talk about that. Sorry. Uh, Belize and legalization and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience. Feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in after a headline has been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events. But always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? Oh, yeah. I got uh, some news coming out of... Technical 420 from Michael Berger. 
all about Jason Beck's best friend, Marco Rubio, clearly has no fundamental understanding of the cannabis industry. With last week's barrage of headlines, I almost forgot about this one, so I'm glad of the good folks over at Technical Support 20 covered it in a Michael Berger editorial last night. Berger argues we're finding ourselves in a very weird investment environment where traditionally reliable information sources have gone batshit crazy, ignoring obvious uh, signs and widely available data contradicting their mass-produced bullshit messaging. He says Warren Buffett calling Bitcoin a scam to Senator Marco Rubio saying black market cannabis is laced with fentanyl. It's obvious the market's being fed bad info from previously reliable sources. Here's what Rubio said last week during an interview uh, with the Pensacola, Pensacola TV station when asked about Northwest Florida's large veteran population who've been lobbying for medical relief through cannabis, which has shown documented promise abroad. When you decriminalize something, the message that you're basically sending people is it must not be that bad. Now, suddenly, you're an 18 or 17-year-old and say, well, I know marijuana. You tell me not to smoke it, but you know what? It can't be that bad because the federal government made it legal. And so all of a sudden now you're going to have a problem in this country because that becomes a gateway. We know that marijuana use is often the first thing that people use before they move on to something else. We've also seen, by the way, marijuana being purchased off the streets that's laced with fentanyl and other drugs, and it's killing people. Senator Marco Rubio, you are fake news. His comments are obviously misleading uh, his constituents. And with Florida being a medical state, I truly hope large federal, uh, veteran portion of his followers find a better option come midterm elections. The American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse, a bi-monthly peer-reviewed medical journal covering all aspects of addiction, released back in 2015 the results of a decade-long study conducted between tw- uh, 2000 and 2011 pointing not to cannabis, but alcohol as the one true gateway drug. The observed subjects were high school seniors, and the results were very compelling. 88% of drug users started with alcohol, not weed. Per the article, when you analyze the amount of people killed by alcohol, the number is exponentially higher than any other substance. So Senator Rubio should be ashamed of himself. He actually, if he actually cares about veterans or the elderly who've supported him over the last few years, maybe he should be more focused on data-driven facts tied to the U.S. opioid epidemic. If he cares so much about Florida's economy, maybe he should be more bullish about the absolute boon of a growth opportunity cannabis has provided the Sunshine State. Berger goes on to say Rubio is the perfect example of everything wrong with the justice system. They bash him for his failed presidential run and say his words have carried less weight since dropping out of the the race. And until he starts making data-backed statements less driven by emotion, his opinion uh, uh, will continue to be discounted. But here's the problem. Enough people are going to catch that TV appearance and believe him. He's an elected official knowingly pumping out false information on a live news broadcast. Investors will be turned off to the industry because of these lies. People will get hurt because of these dumbass statements, and some might even die. So the people of Florida, I hope you guys find a better uh, representative than Senator Rubio because he ain't it. He is fake news. Whether they are Democrat, Republican, or independent, find somebody else. Get this guy the fuck out of office. And... um, Fuck Trump too. This is Rico Lamit. You are <laughs> dope head on the street. <laughs> Reporting live for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear what the rest of the team has to say about this. 
Rico, isn't he the one that had that super awkward uh, water bottle grab? Yes, and I'm actually posting that uh, um, um, today on Instagram. <laughs> have it is there up. is there a gif? Is, yes. is there a gif of that? Yes, there is. I'm gonna put it on. Oh, please. <laughs> I think that's Thank a really you. good point, Rico. It is dangerous, you know? It's like this misinformation isn't just misinformation. It is dangerous because it has serious consequences for policy and for people, for their freedom. So thank you for highlighting this. You know, Rico, being a Floridian, I'm not in Senator Rubio's district. He's in South Florida. Um, 67% of, of uh, voters voted for the medical program here in Florida. Over 73% want um, adult use legalized here in the state. And I just think it's really obtuse for lawmakers not to be in tune. And the biggest community is in the villages, which the average age of users and medical marijuana um, card holders in Florida is like uh, in that community is like 57. Um, it's a 60 plus and over community. And they're the biggest, you know, supporters and users and card carrying um, individuals in the whole entire state. So, you know, um, uh, you know, elections matter. Um, voting matters. And I agree with you, like, if you can't get with it and understand what's going on and be able to at least be flexible, um, you know, we need to be looking at other options. 100%, Rico, that's fire. We've got Gary up from the audience. Gary, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, you know, newbie, right, Roz? Anyways, uh, I'd love to say that the whole situation with the uh, fentanyl being laced in cannabis is a total myth. We, we have thought that for many, many years because folks know the flashpoint of fentanyl is much lower than the the uh, uh, firing point of, of cannabis. So if you burn it, obviously you're burning the fentanyl. However, there was a situation in Zephyr Hills, Florida, which is not too far from where I live. I talked with Sheriff Nako about this. This was There was three people picked up some uh, bud from the guy in the back of the, seat, back of the bar. And by that night, all three of them were dead. There were there was no other drugs in the house other than the cannabis, but apparently this guy was dealing fentanyl. There was powder in the uh, in the bud, and of course, just in the process of rolling a joint, you, it goes back and forth from your hands to your to the joint, and it actually goes into the mucosa when you put the joint in your mouth. It's not the burning part where it gets to you. It gets to you at that point where they're there. So we do have deaths in there. It was it occurred during the time when they had uh, spring break over here, and we had a lot of dealers down here putting out a lot of legacy booth unfortunately and hey, Gary, uh, do you have do you have links uh to that uh, with 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 proof yes everything I, that went down can you send that over to us please i'd be more than happy to because it, 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 it saddens me to know that there's somebody that reckless dr barry so, did so you- what you're saying so what you're saying gary is that someone who was a fentanyl dealer happened to have some fentanyl remnants laid out on a table and then rolled some weed on top of those remnants and you're then talk- died from that. Yeah, you're talking about a, a substance uh, that uh, the lethal doses can be measured. No, no, I'm, I'm very aware. I just want to make sure that we're not scaring the public and, and claiming that it was a laced fentanyl weed s- s- uh, scandal. Right. We wanna, yeah, I, that's, I, that's why I was asking if you have uh, um, information tied to the source. I'd like to check it out before we like, put that out as information. We don't want to give people the wrong uh, info to go off of. Dr. Barry, yeah. did you want to yeah. weigh in? Yeah, I do. Thanks. Listen, you know, Gary and and Roz and us Floridians know that this is a public health crisis. I'm an emergency medicine physician, everybody by training. I did it for 35 years before my five years doing medical cannabis down in Florida. This was always an urban myth about fentanyl and cannabis connection. But, you know, I've talked to Gary about this and there's two other well-documented cases 
one in Connecticut and one also down here in Florida that are coroner's cases. And then and, and Gary's right. The fentanyl burns in the joint, but it's the licking of your fingers. Listen, it's dry down here in Florida, everybody, this time of year. You have to lick your fingers to twist that joint. And then you lick the gum. It's that mucosal exposure. And as the emergency physician that I am, I've always discounted that urban legend, that urban myth. But there are one dose overdoses out there now, everybody. And to me, as a medical cannabis clinician in 2022, it's my moral obligation to advocate for each and every patient that I see to have safe access to a product that I know will be safe for them. So yeah, I just have to add in um, with, to Gary that it used to be an urban myth, but no longer. But guys, I love your show. I tune in all the time. I rarely pop up on stage. Um, and thanks so much for offering this venue. It's, it's, a, it's a great hour every day. Hey, Barry, real, Barry, real quick. Um, why is it always fucking Florida doing shit like this? <laughs> what the fuck? Man? You know what? Listen, we're so dysfunctional down here. Um, we haven't even talked dose cap um, yet, everybody, and, and rolling 35-day flower recommendation. The state of Florida is getting into the way of patient access every way that I can. But believe me, there's warriors down here, and you're talking to three of them right now. And we're going to continue to insist that that access to safe, legal product um, is the best that it can be down here in Florida. But but thanks for the stage today, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, and buy legal or know your plug. Yeah. Grow your and own guys. cannabis. Yeah, thank and, you, guys. And just, and just to be fight. clair, that's a hey, grow your own is a pipe dream in Florida. You you it'll take forever before you see see that. And and just to be clear, there is no laced fentanyl weed out there people this was a fentanyl dealer that was rolling up weed so let's not perpetuate the hysteria yeah it's not flooding the streets no nothing there's an isolated um uh event and, it's an uh, isolated guys, incident incident isolated event <laughs> this guy's <laughs> this guy's obviously a bad person all right. Well, let's keep. <clears throat> Thank you so much for that uh, story, Rico, and great, great audience participation. We love our audience, but we're going to keep smoking the news. So next up is co-producer Jason Beck. His provocative spin keeps the show popping. He has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting his first store in San Francisco, raided by the DEA multiple times, and surviving the drama of the past few decades. He is legitimately the longest, continuous cannabis retailer in the United States. What have you got today, Jason? Oh, good morning. Thank you so much, Susan. Today, it's a little bit of a long one, so I'm going to go into it first, and I hope everyone can follow along and put your seatbelts on. Because this guy, he faces 10 years to life for selling pot a legal business in most states. Jonathan Wall, a 26-year-old cannabis entrepreneur, has been confined at a federal supermax facility in Maryland for nearly 20 months now, awaiting a May 2nd trial that could send him to prison for life. Wall is accused of transporting more than 1,000 kilograms of marijuana from California, where cannabis is legal for adult use, to Maryland, where it allows only for its medical use. Wall's case illustrates the draconian penalties that can still be imposed on people for selling pot at a time when most states have legalized cannabis businesses. As far as the federal government is concerned, all of those businesses are criminal enterprises. But depending on how federal prosecutors choose to exercise their discretion, 
selling cannabis can either make you millions of dollars as a state licensed supplier or it can send you to prison for decades. Under federal law, distributing 1,000 kilograms or more of cannabis is punishable by a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years and a maximum penalty of life in prison. Maryland also treats unauthorized marijuana sales harshly, a drug kingpin, meaning an organizer, supervisor, financier, or manager in a case involving 50 pounds or more is subject to imprisonment for not less than 20 years and not exceeding 40 years without the possibility of parole. In California, by contrast, state licensed adult use sales are legal, while selling cannabis without a license is a misdemeanor punishable by up to six months in jail. Although President Sleepy Joe Biden has said he favors reclassifying cannabis as a Schedule II drug, Biden also promised that he would broadly use his clemency power to commute the sentences of nonviolent cannabis offenders and specifically said that anyone who had been convicted of cannabis offenses should be let out of jail. But so far, none of uh, so far, he has not used his clemency power at all from the uh, far from releasing people who violated pot probation. His administration is trying to imprison more of them as Wall's case shows. In Texas, where this journalist lives, he says, I live I live in a state where all sales involving more than seven grams, about a quarter of an ounce, are felonies. Selling up to five pounds carries a mandatory minimum of six months and a maximum of two years. The penalty is two to 20 years for, for five to 50 pounds and five to 99 years for 50 to 2,000 pounds and 10 to 99 years for more than 2,000 pounds. Congress authorized people who violated the Volstead Act, which implemented federal alcohol prohibition after the passage of the 18th Amendment. Under the Volstead Act, a first-time offender convicted of manufacturing or selling liquor could be punished by up to six months in jail or up to a fine of $1,000, equivalent to about $16,600 today. Those maximums rose uh, to, five, to five years or a $2,000 fine for subsequent offenses. However, this is the best thing, and I hope everyone pays attention on this part because it's what we need more of in the country. Jury nullification seems even more fitting for Wall since the penalties he faces are much more severe. The drug he allegedly sold is less hazardous than alcohol by several important measures, and the ban he is charged with violating, unlike alcohol prohibition, has no obvious constitutional uh, basis at least as it pertains to interstate activities. While defendants who have clearly broken the law generally are not allowed to urge an acquittal on the interest of justice, jurors are apt to notice that the Justice Department is trying to imprison Wall for conduct that is legal in much of the country. In the case, and this is just my personal thought on this, because the lawyer that is trying to defend Wall is trying to use a defense of saying that there's all these other states in the country that, that are allowing for the commerce of cannabis, so therefore they should let my client off. I personally don't agree with this argument. I think it's a terrible argument, and I would tell you what, if I was Wall, personally, I would just be just tell him to just sentence me now because I already know this, this defense is not going to work. And so in the case of his lawyer is trying to make the argument that everyone else is doing it, so why are you only prosecuting my client? Anyone that has been to jail before knows that argument is going nowhere fast. And if anyone wants to see a movie clip, they might as well just go ahead and watch Blow, where Johnny Depp tries to argue the, argue the fact that he just crossed an imaginary line where the Justice Department did not view that as an imaginary line. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I mean, when was that movie made, Jason? I mean, things have changed so much. I, I, I think that juries are going to be much more hesitant to convict anybody for cannabis crimes. 
when MSOs not a are making jury, not a federal jury. How many of y'all have uh, served on a jury? That is one of the most important things that you can do as an American citizen. Don't try and get out of jury duty. Do it. It is really hard to see, you know, that a lot of people are still being prosecuted, especially with these like really serious felonies and things. But I mean, to be fair, it is the law in their state where they are. So, you know, you kind of can't say that it's okay other places like under the law. So I think it highlights an important thing, but I do think that this gentleman, unfortunately, is still going to have some negative consequences. Well, that's where I think Jason's point about jury nullification is key. A lot of people don't understand jury nullification and the power um, that it holds and the power that the jurors hold. So I think really spreading the word about your ability to um, act appropriately as a juror um, is, is, is good information for people to have. 100%. Thank you, Laura. And if you don't know what jury nullification is, make sure that you Google it, print it on your T-shirt, right. write it on your arm, because it's something that the country needs to know Amen. about. Back in the day, oh. I, I used to have a sticker on all of my plants that explained jury nullification so that if any photos of my plants ended up in evidence, which they did, uh, that would be there. Um, we've got... Uh, Lozia, I think that's how you say it, up from the audience. We're at time, so you've got uh, 10 seconds. Hey, yeah, I just wanted to um, chime in. I'm coming in from um, Maryland. I'm actually on the um, board for Maryland Normal, um, and this is something that we are having a, um, a town hall meeting tonight to discuss um, how we can have movement for his case. Um, and I think that um, somebody had made it really a point that they're absolutely right. Knowing the laws and abiding by the laws is, you know, you're the number one thing you need to do. Um, it's not okay to violate the law and, you know, kind of cry wolf to saying because the law has not caught up to where we're at. Um, but just being active is really important. So I encourage everybody who's tuning in to um, join a local advocacy group um, for um, marijuana uh, legalization and understanding that, um, um, his court date is on May 2nd. Um, and like I said, it's a call to action tonight. If anybody's interested, um, you can definitely get the link to, if you're interested in tuning in and seeing how we can help support, um, his case. Thank you Thank so you much, Dr. Felicia. Did you want to take the last word? Yes. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, jury notification is, is really cool if your case even gets to jury, but a lot of poor people and people of color who can't afford their bail are pressured into plea bargaining and they're sitting in jail without even getting to the jury. So I just wanted to say that. Really good point. Yeah, and cash bail. How many states have ended cash bail already? That's a very good question. Yeah. I mean, I, I took a plea because I was scared as fuck. They, they charged me with seven felonies and you know, it, it, it's, it's fucking scary. Um, but let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. Coming out of this, Great state of Florida. This entrepreneurial boss heads the ultimate lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis, holding dual titles as the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana at the same damn time. Up next, Roz McCarthy. What you got for us today, Roz? 
Good morning, Rico. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon. Roz McCarthy here. Um, this particular article comes from Routers, um, Reuters. Is it Reuters or Routers? But anyways, um, California Cannabis Mega Factory Eyes Federal Legalization of Weed. And this is by Phil Lavelle. And so basically, this company behind a cannabis mega factory in California is hoping federal legalization of the substance will allow it to expand distribution of joints, oils, edibles beyond the borders of the most populous U.S. state. California legalized recreational cannabis in 2016, but it remains, of course, on the federal list of controlled substances. The U.S. House of Reps passed a bill on April 1st to end federal ban on marijuana, though the measure is unlikely to pass the Senate. We know that. So Joshua Crane, vice president of operations for cannabis operator Forefront, says the company's 170,000 square foot manufacturing and processing space outside of Los Angeles has the capacity to supply the U.S. West Coast with cannabis products if restrictions are lifted. He says the facility was designed to really be future proof for us in terms of being able to service not just the entire California market, but also but once we have the ability to transport cannabis and sell cannabis across state lines to be able to really feed the West Coast of the country, he said. The factory, which opened in November 2021, is at 20 to 25 percent capacity, says Crane. And we see the natural ramp up, ramp up of the industry that will likely meet an additional demand curve as we get into federal legalization. Crane says that he has a highly automated facility. In the, in, which is in um, California, and manufactures both in-house and partner brands, including oils, tinctures, and several types of candies. Edible items are the most popular, and demand has soared since the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic began in 2020, says Crane. It's been somewhat difficult to keep up with the additional demand, and in March 22, as, as in March 2020, as lockdowns went into effect, sales of recreational cannabis across key U.S. states rose almost 50%. He has a machine that can roll 2,000 joints per hour and a kitchen cup capable of producing 400,000 pieces of candy in a single shift. The factory is located in Commerce, California, and is ready to and is ready for the demand to continue. So all I say is, I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I'm reporting on this, but also I'm sure that his position is is the position of a lot of a lot of different manufacturers in California, and I'm not quite sure if he's the largest. I don't know, but I want you guys to weigh in and tell me what you think. And is he, you know, I don't know if he has the capacity with 170,000 square feet of of grow or pro processing to uh, service all of California and beyond. I'm Roz McCarthy signing off for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear your thoughts. Do you guys know, I mean, is 170,000 square foot, you know, he's producing at 20% capacity, you know, um, could he service all of California and beyond? So I, I've actually been and toured this facility, Roz, and it is extremely impressive. Um, it is a massive facility and they are definitely not only capable of producing for California, but also the rest of the country. I think this would be a prime target for uh, interstate commerce to pump out a lot of exported uh, product. I'm not sure that um, California, um, the splintered market and all the emotions that run through the California industry will allow the people to be served all from one place. Like yeah, this. but I mean, is it is it wishful thinking? Because when you think about it, he's is predicated on the fact of legalization and being able to cross over, you know, state lines. And I just really believe that we're three to five years away from that. I agree with you, Roz. I think that, you know, he's getting there early. And I think by doing that, he's kind of ultimately limiting himself truly because like you guys are saying, everything coming out of one spot, we know with MSOs and other things, how that works. We've seen it with a lot of companies as they streamline and scale. So 
I agree with you, Roz, but I think it's a good story. It seems like the company's trying to get some press about it to me. Yeah. Well, they're based out of a Forefront was also in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I used to connect with one of their um, lease. Um, I forgot Lisa's last name. She used to work with them. And um, they're in a couple other states, I think maybe Michigan as well. So it'll be interesting to follow them. So if you guys don't know Forefront, follow and see what happens as they are trying to take over as being the, the country's number one largest uh, manufacturing processor. I wish people, companies, I wish companies would stop bragging about how they're the biggest and the first and the, all of these things. It's just so boring to me. How about what are you doing to give back? Let's talk about, let's make that be the most exciting thing about your company. Well, technically companies are yeah. not people. Corporations are, Susan. Remember that. Also, too, you can't give back when the government keeps taking everything away. I understand that. I, I kind of agree with that as well. But I do believe there's something you can give back that's not just money, time. Right. And you have, you have energy. You have relationship. You have a Rolodex. Um, Education. Education. You know I mean, it's, it's not just money. Right. right. It always comes down to money, though, Roz. Yes, yes, it does. Follow the money. Or capitalists <laughs> like yourself, Jason, yes. I'm not saying you're a capitalist, I, I agree, but still, it feels good. Let me tell you guys, when you, yes, you make money, but when you're able to make a difference and be, do something that's going to be of value to someone else, it really does feel good. I mean, I, two people who are not sociopaths. <laughs> or I'll want, just save my comments for later. Or wannabe oligarchs. Uh, so, coming up next, we have Eric Lareda. He's an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background and fifth-generation California, California generation known as a freedom fighter, fighter's friend. The writer, brand consultant, event promoter, and content ninja does it all in the name of uncovering the international truths mm -hmm. the lamestream media does not want you to see. What do you have this morning for us, Eric? Hey, Jason. Thank you for the intro. Hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from High Times, and it's Belize close to legalization, but evangelicals want anti-reform referendum. In a, in a unique development, Belize is about to implement full adult-use cannabis reform against fierce opposition by church groups. So in Belize, a Central American country of about 400,000 people, adult-use cannabis reform is on the brink of happening, but with one small wrinkle. Today is the day Cannabis Industrial Hemp Control and Licensing Act is due to enter in force. The only problem, fierce opposition from the National Evangelical Association, the Belize Association of Evangelical Churches, and the Belize Council of Churches. They all oppose the bill and want to hold a referendum to block the measure from being implemented. This means that about 20,000 people must sign a church-backed and sponsored petition to that effect, or 10% of registered voters, by the end of the day. It's not clear that this effort will succeed. As of a week ago, the referendum was still 4,000 signatures short. However, it was also about a week ago that the United Democratic Party, the main op political opposition, and the National Trade Union Congress also issued statements backing the call for a referendum, although these groups have not specified what exactly should be on the referendum. This support also occurred rather suddenly, despite the fact that the leader of the UDP, Moses Barrow, had previously vo voiced support for cannabis legalization, even supporting a con constitutional amendment for the same. For this reason, it looks like political opposition is based on opportunism and nothing else. Such moves come after the Prime Minister, John Briseño, has been promising cannabis reform for the last four years. The House of Representatives passed an amendment decriminalizing personal possession of up to 10 grams in 2017. 
Since then, the bill to regulate the industry moved through the legislative process, passing both the House of Representatives and the Senate. However, as soon as it did, the church groups then called for a referendum to oppose the final enactment of the law. If the church does not reach its goal of attaining enough signatures, the bill will become law, making the country the first in Central America to implement full adult use reform. Licensed shops will legally be able to sell cannabis, although consumers will first have to obtain a cannabis card to shop in them. Uh, Then there's a little bit of a history of cannabis reform in Belize. Until the early 1980s, Belize was the fourth largest exporter of illicit cannabis to the U.S., behind Colombia, Mexico, and Jamaica. However, drug war efforts almost eliminated the export of cannabis here by the mid-90s. They did not stop cultivation for personal use. Indeed, according to a 2016 report by the United Nations on drugs and crime, almost 8.5% of Belizeans use cannabis, making the country the 18th highest in the world in terms of personal use, even ahead of Holland and Jamaica. Uh, Something else the article points out that's pretty salient, tourism and agriculture are the main sources of income and employment. These sectors employ roughly 40% of the population. The per capita income here is about $5,000 per year. It is clear that developing the legitimate cannabis industry will develop with all of that, uh, which is one of the reasons that stiff opposition from evangelical groups and the political opportunism of the political opposition is so disturbing. I'm going to close with this reference to Genesis 129 for our Belizean Christians. Every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And I think edibles count. And that's what I've got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. Thank you so much, Eric. And hopefully we'll get the folks from Belize at the State of Cannabis uh, Americas, of the Americas. I can help you with that, um, um, Susan. We, um, we've we actually are headed to Belize this summer. Um, Eric Range, the chairman for Minorities for Medical Marijuana, is doing, will be there for about 30 days, not only for personal, but also for business to actually talk about policy and legislation and what that would look like for the, for the, um, for that country. So, um, there is conversation. I don't know if you guys remember Shine. He was a rapper under uh, Puffy. Um, but he Shine Poe. Yeah, Shine. He's actually a lawmaker there that's very much supporting. So they're trying to figure out how to bridge the gap between, you know, those from a Christian faith that are looking at this maybe in, a, in a still in a negative way. And also um, the island is wanting to get into the fray from a legalization standpoint. They need to create, uh, they need to uh, get Riri into this whole discussion. Thank you for making that connection, Roz. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, we got to get Central America represented at that, Susan. That would be amazing. Well, cannabis is pretty popular, so I'm pretty sure they're going to want to come over. But uh, we need to relight this room very quickly. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Did you know that the State of Cannabis News Hour's reach goes far beyond the greater continental U.S.? It's true. We've got worldwide live audience members and active downloads as far away as the United Arab Emirates, Japan, even China. China. 
I love them. China. 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 I have to have my China. 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 But also many other places. By becoming a sponsor, you can get your company the global marketing exposure you won't find anywhere else while supporting nonprofit cannabis news. Find out how you can support the State of Cannabis News Hour at www.justsaycare.org. Tell them Rico sent you. Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, yeah. She's the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, the current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, the founder of San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, and most importantly, a badass cannabis mom with the sweetest, silkiest vocal cords ever to be recorded on a podcast. Laura DeCaro, what you got for us today? You guys are so sweet. That's just so, so kind. Thanks for that, Rico. Today, I have a story coming out of Canada. America's hat. <laughs> Health Canada apparently referred almost 500 cannabis-related cases to the federal police over just a two-year period. This is by Matt Limers for MJ Biz. So apparently, this took place between March 2019 and March 2021, and it represented a major increase over the 18 to 19 fiscal year. The referrals, quote, typically consist of illegal cannabis retailers or sales including physical locations, online sales, illegal cultivation and operations, illegal delivery or distribution services, according to a quote from a person company um, not identified um, (laughs) by this article, but just as a uh, Health Canada representative. So apparently in 2019 to 2020, 287 cases were referred. In 2020 to 2021, 197 cases were referred. Um, And according to the author, Health Canada explained that upon receiving a complaint, it advises the individual making that complaint to contact local law enforcement if they suspect illegal activity has taken place, such as unauthorized production, selling, distribution, etc. So I'm curious as to whether or not this means that Health Canada does not allow anonymous complaints like you see in a lot of the states here in in, in the United States. Um, But anyway, Health Canada apparently told MJ Biz that none of the cases referred to the federal police and fiscal year 2019 to 2020 actually directly involved a federal license holder. But apparently one actually did, and it related to an undisclosed license holder name. So while their breakdowns are not available, apparently um, referrals to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police typically consist of illegal retail sales. And I, I thought the article was kind of interesting because, he, you know, the the police were resistant in confirming any of the numbers. The regulators are trying to be responsible by showing, you know, how they're cracking down on illicit, unregulated operations. Um, but there really is very little information and it, it, it just sort of goes through this demonstration in this article of how disorganized both the regulators and the police tend to be in this regard and that they don't have the data to support what it is that they're looking to enforce and whether these enforcement actions actually resulted in anything getting shut down that was outside of the regulated market. Um, so, you know, they also quote the Royal Canadian Mounted Police as saying that they're actually working on organizational priorities, concentrating effort to- efforts towards serious and organized crime and more dangerous drugs such as fentanyl and synthetic opioids. 
um, but they did not provide any statistics with regard to the number of charges filed in those categories. So it's an interesting article. I felt like it was something we should talk about because there's a lot of um, you know, conflicting opinion with regard to whether these enforcement actions should be taking place. And we haven't really seen a lot of these enforcement actions against illicit activities in the United States. And so I'm just wondering what my... Uh, um, what, what the audience has to say about this and what my co-speakers have to say about this. My name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Do you think they should be enforcing? They definitely should be enforcing. That's the government's job is to enforce people that break the law. Well, is it? I mean, because in, like, you know, California, the regulators, we don't have any authority, um, you know, against unlicensed facilities, right? I mean, they might be able to refer it to Department of Public Health or to the police, right? but they don't really, I mean. And, and, and I, I have to refute your, um, your statement, Jason, like the, the, their responsibility is to enforce the law. Like if, if we put that up, then, then nobody would be walking around free period. Like laws are interpreted differently by different people in different areas. And it's our job to prove that to each other through yeah. civil, civil discourse. Right. I mean, 500 cases in the course of a couple of years, Maybe a lot. I I don't really know. It seems like there's a lot of illicit activity out there. But I mean, you know, we have these legacy markets in states like you know California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, especially in New York. You know, and I mean, bringing them into the fold as opposed to just referring them to the police and resulting in arrests would seem like a preferable path forward. My my mind. I agree with you, Lara. Great story. Appreciate that. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Well, coming up next, we have the man, the myth, the beard. That's right. Rep in Long Beach, California, heavy. Our next correspondent is the CEO of Fruits Labs and cannabis intellectual and property attorney. And no amount of California rain can stop this man's vibes. Coming next to the stage, it's Brandon Dorsky. Thanks so much for having me today. My article comes from MJ Brand Insights. It's eight cannabis brands with clever marketing concepts. Uh, This cute article focused on brands bringing some edge to their marketing efforts in terms of doing things that are, quote, smart, memorable, cohesive, and eye-catching. The first brand mentioned was Mamma Mia. They're THC edibles brand inspired by Italian desserts, and their packaging and website have a European mod feel. Brand chef Simone D'Antonio was trained at Alma, a prestigious Italian cooking school, and went on to work at Sud, a Michelin-starred restaurant in Naples. That product is available in the state of California. Loon, another California brand, has a retro space-age vibe that utilizes high-resolution naturescape-inspired imagery for their flower, pre-rolls, and rosin-infused gummies called Gem Drops. Haven't tried that brand myself, but I can say that the packaging does look beautiful. Cookies, probably the most famous brand on this list, earned their spot on the list due to their highly successful streetwear clothing line, as well as their collaborations with musicians, designers, artists, and breeders, including the likes of recording artists Run the Jewels and generational farmers like Jason Gelman of Ridgeline Farms. Edie Parker made the list because they have a flower brand that complements their retro-inspired handbags and home accessories line that were created by designer Brett Hyman. 
They get playful with their marketing efforts to draw attention to the brand, including a current 420 campaign, Weeds Come a Long Way, Baby, that includes a billboard on the iconic Melrose Avenue. Darwin was a brand mentioned in this article for their in-person marketing efforts. They stand out from the pack by looking like an animal mascot in a field of humans. At trade shows, including at MJ Unpacked, you can see the brand standing out from the crowd. The Darwin custom costume is a dignified piece of art to be admired in and of itself. But while an animal might be an eye popper, use of an animal character may not be legal in markets that this brand expands into, even though it is allowed in Arizona, where the Darwin line is embossed on the brand's packaging. Fruit Slabs, shout out to myself, did make this list. We're an edibles brand with THC products in California, Washington, and Oklahoma. We were mentioned for offering fans of the brand intimate concert experiences with our C-Suite team. We also got some shine for having our products illustrated into a recently released graphic novel, Below Sycamore, that features actor Danny Trejo, musician Taz Arnold, and several others, and for getting our products illustrated into a cannabis tarot deck that's being published later this year. Miss Grass, another California brand, was noticed for their informative articles, compelling imagery, and quality brand copy. They're also available in Nevada and Massachusetts. And the last, but certainly not least to make this list, was Washington's Danksar for their beautifully crafted marketing approach that you can catch on their Instagram page that includes mini sculptures made from concentrates. Their cannabinoid creations include uh, concentrate donuts and resin monkeys, and they are allegedly celebrated by superstoners. That's about all I have to report from this article, but if you want to check out some brands that maybe aren't major multi-state operators but have a cool vibe to them, peek at this list. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Thank you, Brandon. Very timely for cannabis's best shopping day of the year. Go spend some money, folks. Hey, I also want to comment, Brandon, thanks for calling out that collab that uh, Cookies is doing with Ridgeline. That shows how big brands can work with super legit craft farmers and sort of elevate that market as well because they know where the good shit's coming from. Congrats, Brandon, on the feature too. That's awesome. And there's some really great brands in this article. Let's keep smoking the news. Our next correspondent was recently highlighted by Central Coast Pinups as one of the most versatile women in the game. This educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County, has an unmatched affinity for drama-free data. So check your feelings at the door. It's time for Liz Rogan. What you got for us today, Liz? Thank you for that amazing intro, Rico. Hi there, everyone. Happy 419. Hope you guys have a minute for this story. Um, my story today comes from Marijuana Moment. It is by Kyle Yeager, uh, and the headline reads, Nevada police are exploiting marijuana scheduling loophole to make arrests despite legalization. ACLU-backed lawsuit claims. So on April 15th, a lawsuit filed by the Cannabis Equity and Inclusion Community, CEIC, and Antoine Poole against the State Board of Pharmacy. Um, plaintiffs say that the board has failed to remove cannabis from Schedule 1, which causes people to continue to run the risk of being prosecuted um, for cannabis. So saying that the police continue to exploit the legal loophole, even though the state's constitution recognizes the medicinal value of cannabis, and the voters approved this in 2016. 
Antoine Poole is an individual who was charged in 2017 with Class E felony for cannabis possession. And the CEIC works to help people with expungement from cannabis charges and empower disadvantaged communities to participate in the state legal market. CEIC founder Aisha Goins said in a press release that the group is consistently fighting for policy changes that will ensure freedom for black and Latinx people who use cannabis as treatment. And she said it's very disheartening that after four years after legalization, we're still dealing with policies that can derail people's lives over cannabis possession. I think this kind of mirrors the lawsuit, the article that Jason brought up. But anyway, the ACLU is backing the lawsuit and they're representing the plaintiffs in this case. Attorney Sadmira Ramek said, this is what the police departments are doing. They're actually charging people with possession of a controlled substance with intent to sell, even if it's cannabis. She said the police are aware that cannabis has been, le- has been legalized, but they're using these loopholes related to the board's current scheduling status to perpetuate, quote, the same issue that we've seen when there was a war on cannabis going on. She said that the Board of Pharmacy is similarly aware of the cannabis policy changes have been enacted in the state, but still maintain their Schedule 1 status despite being required to evaluate how these these scheduling decisions annually. And she said she's anticipating pushback, but they haven't heard anything back from the board. The lawsuit states that the CEIC and Mr. Poole are entitled to relief regarding the misclassification of marijuana, cannabis, and cannabis derivatives as Schedule One substances, and that failure to pros- properly classify marijuana will, quote, cause irreparable injury to petitioners because CEIC must continue to expend its resources on preventing and or remedying such efforts, and Mr. Poole continues to suffer the consequences of cannabis-related convictions. So the petitioners are seeking injunctive relief and asking the court to stop the board from, you know, take cannabis off schedule one. So that's the basic story. Um, it's really sad that you look at other parts of Nevada and they're basically their market is bringing in over a billion dollars in the last year. 10% of that tax revenue is supposed to support public education. Um, so obviously there's a lot of challenges with this board of pharmacy. They're, you know, regulated pharmacy. We're talking about federal and other things. So, um, I just love to hear what you guys have to say about this. Um, especially uh, Chris Eggers or anyone else on this. Um, so this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Liz, great article. Thank you for sharing it. Um, I think at the bottom of the article, it talked about a police officer who's uh, who had tested positive and, and is fighting for their job back. Um, and, and I didn't see the details, but they won a, a victory in the most recent court case. So that was at the bottom of, of your article. I thought it was really important to share and um, wild. Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. It was it was definitely positive. In 2021 of August, um, a former Las Vegas police officer, he was sued for termination. He sued after he was terminated for testing cannabis, um, but he did get a procedural victory. So, yeah, that's really great. It's good to see that. But at the same time, like, what about the pharmacy board in this lawsuit? Is this going to, is that really going to affect it or what? Is there any real chance of this moving forward or is this kind of just, you know, making a statement? What's up, Nevada? Nevada seems a little bipolar at times. So strange. The state's run by Las Vegas, which is not a real place. And the Mormons do all of the accounting for the casinos. I thought it was called Lost Wages. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Coming up next, we have Adelia Carrillo. She's the CMO of the award-winning tech platform Event High and co-host of the groundbreaking woman-focused Blunt Brunch event. What do you have this morning for us, Adelia? 
Good morning, everyone. So today's title is Colorado's First Cannabis Bar with THC Beer Opens This Week in Denver. This is by Tiny Riccardi. Um, So very soon, Colorado will have a bar where consumers can enjoy a non-alcoholic THC-infused beer while also pairing it with uh, some cannabis. Jod's Mile High Smoke is set to be the first recreational sales and hospitality business in the state as a cannabis lounge where consumers can come to buy cannabis, smoke, eat, or drink it on site. Uh, The business is actually located in Denver, Colorado, and is set to open on April 22nd. Uh, The owner is Josh Davis. He's a CEO of Legacy 64. He has spent the past five years helping cannabis businesses in Colorado and beyond with compliance in state and local laws. Um, Initially, he applied applied for the hospitality license and didn't land one of the coveted five licenses within the lottery. However, he did garner one of the 10 backup spots um, should any of those original license holders fail to meet the county's timeline. And luckily enough, uh, he did, in fact, gain that license. Now, a little bit about the bar. You will find a regular bar attributes besides alcohol. Uh, the business is in a 4,000 square foot space, which will include TVs, arcade, video games, along with an outdoor patio and artificial turf and small stage for special events. Um, the Outside patio won't be open till the summer. Now, what about the cannabis menu? So Jods will serve flour, concentrates, and edibles in various forms, and they will also offer all the necessary utensils for consumption. There are limitations in Colorado. Consumers can purchase up to two grams of flour, a half gram of concentrate, or 20 milligrams of edibles served up to 10 milligrams at a time during this one visit. So essentially, you can go there, grab some, you know, order a gram pre of flour and roll up your own joint, or they also have pre-rolls. They also are going to serve silicone pipes to customers to keep. They're going to have bongs and other apparatuses for flour and concentrates. They did state they will sanitize those between each use. Um, Now, a little bit of words from David. He said he's done with people hiding in the closet and smoking weed. He said, I'm trying to change the game. I'm trying to show the world what the future of cannabis is like. While I'm Doing the first one, once I show people this can be done, it can be effective, and there will be thousands of these. Uh, One other comment, of course, with cannabis, we do need to have munchies. So there will be munchies available on site. They're going to serve light snacks, and they're going to have a rotating roster of food trucks. Now, at the end of the day, I'm just curious to see who's going to pave the way when it comes to cannabis uh, consumption lounges, and I'd love to hear from from the State of Cannabis News team. Uh, This is Adelia, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Cannabis beer sounds so gross. I hate the way (laughs) cannabis tastes, except for smoking it. And I hate beer. And that combo just bleh. Yucky. It will not offend. Go ahead. In Maine, we had this 420 IPA, and you would like, and they had cannabis leaves on the back, and you would crack it, and you'd open it, and it really did smell like cannabis. So I don't know. I think there's definitely an opportunity for this, but I, I worry about the crossfade a little too. And not, not a big fan of beer as I used to be um, now that I have gout. Um, a lot of my friends that do make beer back in Chicago, uh, they're actually excited to work with um, with cannabis because of the um, closeness and nature um, of, of actual cannabis buds to, um, to hops. I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for crossover there in the near future. Hey, I think it is a great story, Delilo. Thanks for bringing that because I think that you, that quote is spot on. This is the future. Consumption lounges are going to be huge with because you're going to be drawing locals and tourists. And I think it's just an amazing opportunity. And, and beverages are going to play a central part of that. So I think what this guy's pulled off is pretty amazing. And it's, it is the future in a, in a big segment of our industry. Let's keep smoking the news.
Got time for one more. Let's. So he's a former NorCal cop who sacrificed his shield to increase our chances of survivability. This dope dad and cannabis security consultant for CC Security Solutions chose a road seldom traveled by fellow boys in blue. He put down his gun and badge and picked up a blunt and a notepad to join the State of Cannabis News team. Up next, Chris Eggers. Bring us home, my brother. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Rico, thank you for the fire celebration. Uh, my article comes out of SF Gate. San Francisco is going to allow on-site consumption of cannabis and sales for the first time at Hippie Health for tomorrow's 420 celebration, which is anticipated to attract 20,000 people, according to this article. Um, Mayor Breed said that we know it, this event at one point was going to occur one way or another, whether we wanted it to or not. Um, and so they are going to allow consumption and they are asking everybody to buy cannabis at the event itself so that they know that it's safe. Uh, the success of this event will set the tone for other events. It is really important that we get this right, according to the Office of Cannabis Director Nikish Patel. Um, Breeze cited that former Halloween and Castro celebrations, which the city largely shut down after nine people were wounded in the shooting in 2006, but this is one of the first large events since the pandemic. Very excited about it. We support people being able to come together safely, Breeze said, and if we have to make changes if these events become harmful or unsafe in any way, we will do so. They're saying that um, law enforcement and the fire department is going to be out there uh, very deep with medical tents as well uh, for people, but it should be a good event. I wanted to highlight this. I thought this was a pretty cool article uh, and very interesting. They're going to be able to uh, sell cannabis at this event this year. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. So this is a weird switch, right, for San Francisco because we're usually like pretty liberal at Hippie Hill. And so this is going to be like they won't even let you smoke or consume cannabis within 20 feet of the, the food vending areas. The rules are insane. There's this whole list that the Office of Cannabis sent out to everyone. These are the rules. These are the rules. These are the rules. I feel like you're going to have a lot of people outside the fun area <laughs> that just are participating in a real 420. That's they're a setting this, I think I think they're setting themselves up for some kind of fight some kind of melee <laughs> people are not going to listen to those fucking rules yeah. do not keep the cannabis exactly, consumers Rico. away from the food that's crazy exactly, Rico. Who, who's, who's going to be there to enforce on this and keeping people not smoking near the food this just sounds totally totally unachievable it sounds like you're fishing for a defund the police comment jason <laughs> is, that, is that what you're doing um, I actually was not fishing for that. I'm just saying it just doesn't make any sense why people create these different types of ordinances and whatnot that are totally unenforceable and actually make no make no make no real sense. You know what I mean? Like, what my fucking weed smoke is going to get into your food and you're going to get high? Get the fuck out of here! You're at a fucking weed event on 420. <laughs> is that what so you're thinking? <laughs> yeah. So, so, what, so what you're saying is that you actually support the defund the police movement? No, I do not support defund the record. police in any way whatsoever. No, that is total fake news. Laura, are you going to go? Oh no, 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 no. There's there's a lot no? of other good stuff happening. <laughs> okay, uh, we have private events happening. Uh, I'm but, just going to yeah. throw in the devil's advocate part. It's just that, you know, there are some people who don't want smoke in their face. And I understand like that we're at a 420 event, but I do want to make sure that we're respectful of all people. So, but it's sorry. already there. If it's you, always been if there. You don't, it's always been there. If you don't want there. smoke in your face, don't go to go a, to a concert event. Don't go, go. Don't go to a go concert. To church. If you're scared, go to church. <laughs> it's not even limited yeah. to smoking. Yeah, it's like it's it's any. It's just it's all consumption. So it's not even limited to smoking. 
All right, but we've reached the top of the hour. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, you can do it at the end. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the state of Cannabis News Hour, news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. I feel like San Francisco should focus on cleaning up its streets before it worries about the smoke in the air at a weed festival. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Happy Bicycle Day, everybody. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye. Don't forget to wear your pajamas to work.